I'm going to invite you to turn with me in God's Word this evening to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. Then afterwards, we'll turn in our confession to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20. We want to read the Word and our confession under the heading of the Comforter. The Comforter. From John 14, and we'll begin in verse 15. The Word of God reads this evening, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither, excuse me, it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that You will manifest Yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word, and My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words, and the word that you hear is not Mine, but the Father who sent Me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, will teach you all these things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here ends the reading of God's Word. And then we'll invite you to turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, which is on page 221 in the Forms and Prayer or 1071 in the Hymnal. Lord's Day 20. I'll read the question and invite the congregation to respond in unison. Question 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that He is given also to me, so that through true faith, He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. And we just have one question this evening. Dear congregation, when I was in my Bible college days up in Canada, one summer afternoon, I heard a knock on the door, and to my delight, the Jehovah Witnesses had come over and wanted to talk. And in my young brashness, I decided to invite them in for a debate. I don't remember much about that conversation other than learning that I didn't know that much, first of all. And then second of all, when I think back on it now, I remember them pressing me on one point in particular. How could you be sure that the Son and the Spirit were divine? 
How could you be sure that the Son and the Spirit were God? Now, that was the first time, but it wasn't the last time that I was confronted with people who claimed the name of Christ. They claimed the name of God, but not the name of the Spirit. They confess to believe in many of the benefits of the Spirit. In fact, the witnesses and the Mormons are actually quite charismatic people. In many senses, they probably could have confessed the second half of Lord's Day 20. They would say, yes, Christ did give us the Spirit. The Spirit's work does unite us to God. We do receive Jesus' benefits and the Spirit will remain for us forever, but He is not God. But this Christian church, Trinity United Reformed Church, confesses that the Spirit is God. We confess that this evening when we recited the Apostles' Creed together. We confess that just as, or in the same way that the Father and the Son are divine, so is the Spirit God. He is not less than God. The Spirit is not an aspect of God or the love or communion between the Father and the Son, but the Spirit has the essence, the attributes, and is an eternally distinct member of the Trinity. Now, I recognize that's technical language. We're going to try to break that down in the rest of our sermon together. But our catechism is concerned to remind us this evening That when we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we are confessing that the Spirit is God. But not only this, but that we are participants in Christ. We are participants in God as the Spirit guides and indwells believers. I want to show you this. That's our theme this evening. We are participants in God, that is, participants in Christ, by the indwelling and eternal presence of the Spirit. I want to show you that in three points this evening. We want to see the deity of the Holy Spirit. We want to see the work of the Holy Spirit and participation in the Son by the Holy Spirit. That's the deity of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and participation in the Son by the Holy Spirit. So we turn first to our question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? The question is, is the Holy Spirit, like the Father and like the Son, also God? And the catechism resoundingly says, the Spirit is also God. We see this also in John 14. Notice with me this evening that in John 14, Jesus equates and honors the Holy Spirit as God. Notice that. The Holy Spirit is treated as, He is honored as if He is God, which He is. So Jesus begins this third discourse as He's teaching His disciples with these words in verse 15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. This is a continuation of the prior conversation that Jesus has begun already with His disciples. 
you see chapters 13 through 17 are actually one long narrative as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his soon coming departure, which really is his crucifixion and death and eventual resurrection and ascension. Jesus in this dis, or in this long narrative, we often call it the farewell discourse. He is preparing his disciples as to how they are they ought to live as Christians when he's gone. We need to maybe just pause for a moment this evening and consider how painful this talk would have been for them. Remember the disciples had left behind their family, their jobs, provision, and creature comforts to follow Jesus. They thought that He was going to establish His throne upon earth and Israel was going to be exalted to that mighty nation that it once was under King David and King Solomon. And Jesus is now telling them, no, I have to leave. And what we know in 14 verse 1 is the disciples were struggling to come to terms with this. If you've ever had a, a close friend, a loved one, or a beloved coworker, or a pastor take a job and move away, you, you know how painful this can be. Saying goodbye to someone whom you love. It just gives us a small sense of what the disciples would have felt. And if we were to read through or preach through the whole chapter of 14, the theme that I would posit for you is that it's a theme of love. Jesus talks about how the Father and the Son have such a great love for one another. And a mutuality with one another. So much so that the Son would gladly be obedient. So much so that the Son would gladly leave His throne in heaven, come to earth, live upon the earth, be not recognized by His own people, even to the point of being betrayed and crucified. Jesus says in John 15, if you love Me, He's saying that the reason I love, or the reason I do what the Father tells Me to do is because I love the Father. And the reason you must do what I tell you to do is because you must love Me like I love the Father. The love that compels Christ to obey must be evident in our lives as well. You might say, well, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Talking about loving God and being obedient... Let's not miss what Christ is calling us to this evening. In verse 15, Christ is calling us to an otherworldly, intense, heartfelt love for God. He is calling His disciples to live as citizens of heaven even though you're still on earth. Even though I won't be physically present with you. Even though I won't be physically manifest in your life, you need to be obedient and to love Me and to do all of My commandments. 
for just a moment this evening, let's look into our own hearts and ask, in our own strength, according to our own powers, who among us is able to obey all of Christ's commandments? Who among us can obey all that God has asked us to? The point I'm trying to make is that it goes beyond our human abilities. We can't do what Christ is calling us to by our own strength. So look at what Jesus says. I promise you, I promise to send you divine assistance. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will send you another Helper. I know we're all familiar with this verse, but we should slow down and consider these words. Jesus says, I will request to the Father as if He was an equal with the Father to send to the disciples a very important word correctly translated in the ESV, another Helper. Another meaning someone likewise to Christ. Somebody who is like Christ. What this passage is telling us is that the One that Christ will send is not merely a power, but is a person. He is like the Father and like the Son. He is another Helper, not a different Helper. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is that even though I am going to leave you, I am going to send you one like Myself. Therefore, if we confess the Father to be divine, we must see that the Scriptures also confess Jesus to be divine. And if we confess Jesus to be divine, and to not have made a single mistake even in His words, we must also confess the Spirit to be divine. For the Father says He is an equal with Christ, and Christ says He's an equal with the Father, And Christ says, I'm an equal with the Spirit. All throughout the Scriptures, the Spirit has never been portrayed as less than God. Not only this, we, we also see in John 14, the Spirit is said to have what we call the attributes of God. The attributes of God. When theologians or pastors speak of attributes, what we really mean is that something has the qualities of someone else. So you might say, my son Calvin has many of his father's attributes. What it means is, he's also got a thick skull and he's also got etc. etc. Poor kid. Pray for him. It means He has the same qualities that I would have. And we often talk about this in relation to children. For instance, God, according to His nature, is holy, He's true, and He's just. There are also attributes that belong to God uniquely and alone. He's omniscient. That means He knows all things. He's self-existent. He doesn't have to depend on the earth to hold Him up. He doesn't have to depend on oxygen to be there to flow into His lungs. He doesn't have to depend on someone else to exist. 
God is infinite. That means He fills all things. He's above all things and in all things. But Jesus, look at what He says. He bears witness that the Spirit also has the attributes. He has the qualities of God. Jesus says in verse 16 that the Spirit is eternal. I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. The Spirit is transcendent above time and above space. He was before all things and is going to be after all things. Jesus says that the Spirit is omnipresent. That is everywhere present. He says in verse 17, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He can exist inside a person, outside of a person, and in all places the Spirit exists. And third, even just by His title, the Spirit of truth in verse 17, we see that He is spiritual. He is the Spirit. Now we should be clear this evening that Jesus didn't say these words in order for us to proof text the Spirit's deity and next time the Jehovah Witnesses come to our door we say, gotcha. I know how to defeat you. But He says this so that His disciples would have, getting back to the theme of our morning's worship service, He says it so that they would have comfort. Even though Jesus would die upon the cross, His promise was still true from Isaiah 41. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. But He does this by His Spirit. That is, that the eternal God will remain with them. He will work in and through them, never to be separate from them. He will be with them in their spirit. And He will exist with them from this present age unto all of heavenly life. And the Spirit does this by the power of God. Jesus says that He will send a helper that's a, that's a title, helper, advocate, or comforter. The word another tells us that the Spirit is not the first, but one who has come before Him. Jesus Christ is the first comforter, and now there will be a second comforter. Both the Son and the Spirit. But this expresses the intimate presence of God with His people that begins in the incarnation in Christ and will carry on in the new creation by the Spirit. Just as Jesus bore witness to God, He spoke on behalf of God, He consoles and guides and teaches and helps His disciples, so does the Spirit do all of these things. This isn't the only place that the Spirit is referred to as God. We see this in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, verses 28-25, Hebrews 10, verse 15 and 16, just to name a few. Let us be absolutely clear this evening, dear Christian. If you believe the Bible to be true, you must confess that the Spirit is God. Amen. Now, I want to give an application this evening to our boys and girls. Sometimes these things can seem quite complex. One of the most unhelpful ways to remember how to defend the deity of the Son and the deity of the Spirit is using an acronym. 
I was taught that we can use the word hand to, def- to be able to defend our faith in the Holy Spirit as God. That God, or that we see in, this, in the Scriptures that the Spirit is honored as God. The Spirit has the attributes of God. He is named as God and does the deeds of God. H-A-N-D. He is honored as God. He has the attributes of God. He's named as God and does the deeds of God. The Spirit is said to be all of these things. And this can be a helpful way for us to remember how to defend our faith. And then an application for all of us here this evening is look at what the catechism and what Jesus are saying. The Spirit is with us all the time. That means He's with us forever. That is that when the Spirit indwells you, that in the act of regeneration, He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. We can grieve the Spirit, as David says, may not your Spirit draw away from me in Psalm 51, but He was sent to remain with the church forever. Dear Christian, you are never alone. God is always with you. And this indwelling, His indwelling of our hearts means that He knows every part of who we are. He knows our secret faults. He knows our hidden sins. He knows our struggles in this life. But He still will not leave you or forsake you. Let's look also at the work of the Spirit. So we've seen the deity of the Spirit. We also want to see the work of the Holy Spirit. Recently, I was at a candidacy exam, which is the exam that all the students have to go through uh, in order to be ordained in the United Reformed Churches. And this was in southwest Ontario, and they were examining a student. And one of the questions that was asked was this, what is an unimagined issue that we are dealing with today that the catechism doesn't address? And immediately my mind went to this, the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. Our catechism only has one question on the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord's Day 20. Compared to Lord's Days 9 and 10 on the Father, and Lord's Days 11 through 19 concerning the Son. But yet, in the last hundred years or so, we've seen the rise of Pentecostalism, the rise of the contemporary church or the seeker-friendly church. Uh, there's scarcely been a more controversial um, subject for our churches today. To put it another way, to maybe make it more applicatory for you this evening, think of the question like this. Is it the Spirit's job to make us speak in other tongues? Are we supposed to be, as Christian people, praying in angelic languages? If you go to some churches today, you'll hear nonstop um, teachings about healings, prophecy, spiritual gifts, second fillings. Amidst all of these things, what is the Bible teaching us about the Spirit's work? Notice the first thing that the Catechism says in the second half of Lord's Day 20. He's saying the Spirit is not discriminating in the church who gets the indwelling of the Spirit. It says, He is given also to me. You have to read that in light of its first statement that the Spirit is eternal God. What that means is that He, 
that as God, the third member of the Trinity is given also to me. The catechism does not make a bifurcation. It doesn't split the church into two groups. Well, the spiritual side of the church, which is of course the left side, they get the Spirit. And the not a spiritual side, they don't get the Spirit. No, the catechism, and I believe the Scriptures also teach that all Christians are given the Spirit. Doesn't Christ explicitly teach that in John 14? He says, I will send you the Helper to His disciples. Verse 17, who will indwell you. Verse 18, who will help you continue in the Christian work. Verses 20 and 24, who will apply the work of Christ to you without distinction among the disciples. He doesn't say Peter alone gets the Spirit because he was the one who confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He doesn't say that the Apostle John gets the Spirit because he was the one whom Jesus loved. No, he says all of his disciples will be given this Helper. This is a huge problem that the church needs to address today. Because there are Christians today, many of them in fact, who teach that the Holy Spirit only indwells some of the saints. How prevalent is this teaching? Well, the Bible college I went to back up in Canada where I got my undergraduate degree vehemently, passionately taught that only some Christians received the indwelling of the Spirit and that was evidenced by speaking in tongues. That was the only way you knew. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you did not have the Spirit. You were not filled with the Spirit. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 12 and also Romans 8, they claim this teaching is from the Apostle Paul. But listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Without distinction. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, all have been made to drink of one Spirit. The Apostle Paul is saying, if you are part of the body of Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are converted, you are Spirit-baptized. Now, I will admit, there are three instances of tongues, that's speaking in other languages, accompanying Spirit baptism in the book of Acts. We have that Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 16. But there is nowhere else in the Bible where speaking in tongues is said to be evidence of Spirit filling, nor or does it teach us that it's to be expected in the Christian's life today. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite of this. We are told that every believer has the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9, 1 Corinthians 12 13, Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. Furthermore, if the Spirit was only for some Christians and not for others, we couldn't believe in Christ in the first place. For it's the Spirit who opens our eyes, our blind eyes, and applies to us the work of Christ, as we'll talk about in point three. 
So Jesus says in verse 16, you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. That is, the Holy Spirit will personally enter each and every member of the church and the church composed of individual members will become the body of Christ. We will be His temple. We will be His permanent dwelling place. We are not our own, brothers and sisters. Even our bodies are His dwelling and His possession. The Spirit is given to all believers. Uh, We should also see in the work of Christ, uh, or sorry, the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit opposes our sinful ways. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to oppose sin and to work against our sin nature even as people who have been converted, even people who have been Christians. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And even as we are regenerate in the Holy Ghost, we still struggle with our sin nature all our days. But yet in our sinfulness and in our fallenness, God has given unto us His Spirit to fight, to do battle with, and to have victory over our sins, the flesh, and the devil. We have been made liable by sins, and by sins we will experience death, but we are made free from sin and death and the devil by the indwelling of the Spirit. God has given us the power of the Spirit to set us free. The Comforter has come that we might keep His commandments, verse 15, that we might have life, verse 19, that we might be able to love God, verse 21, and to keep God's Word, verse 23. You see, that which we could not do according to our sinful flesh, we are now able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a personal, the personal nature of this question gets to the heart of the matter. So, after we have confessed in the Creed that the Spirit is true and eternal God and that He has given also to me, it is as if the Catechism is pulling you aside and saying, so how is it with you? How is your faith? You see, there's no half measures with the Holy Spirit. You either have the Spirit or you don't. And if you do have the Spirit this evening, if the Spirit has indwelt you because you are a Christian, we must nurture our relationship with the Spirit. We need to pray and ask God continually to send His Spirit and that His Spirit would have reign in our lives. Let us confess our need for the Spirit. Ask God to strengthen us by the Spirit that the Spirit would be applied to our sinful ways. This means, brothers and sisters, that when we attack sin, when there's sin in our hearts, we do not attack it by our own strength. Let us not attack sin by our own abilities or even our own will, but we need to attack our sins by the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to attack our sins by the work of the Holy Spirit. But the main triumphant trumpet sound in Jesus' teaching 
is that if He sends you this Helper, this Helper will help you to participate in the Son. You will have union in Christ by the dwelling of the Spirit. In John 14, Jesus is about to leave His disciples. In chapter 18, He's going to be portrayed by Judas Iscariot. He'll be tried by Pontius Pilate. And in chapter 19, He will be crucified. This is the worst sin the world has ever committed. The disciples are being told ahead of time their God and their King would leave them. As, we, as I said earlier in our message this evening, we need to keep in mind that the Jews desired a, a public ministry. They wanted a physical throne. They wanted a kingdom with walls that they could put up and that the Messiah would come with mighty miracles and vindicate the Jews. But Jesus, by saying He is leaving, is saying, I'm not going to be what you want me to be. That this public manifestation, this public giving of the kingdom wasn't ever planned to take place in His first appearance. But His second appearance later. The end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this is a scandal. The disciples seem to have no advantage over the, over the world. We thought You were going to establish Your kingdom, O Lord. That's what's behind Judas's mind when he asks this question in verse 22. Lord, how is it that You will manifest Yourself to us and not the world? He's saying, how can You leave us now when we thought You were going to establish Your kingdom? Jesus had spoken of another Helper, verse 16, who would be unto them the Spirit of truth, verse 17, but the world cannot see Him or know Him. But you will know Him for He lives with you and will be in you. What is He saying? He's saying the world will not see Me, but you will. This is the cause of Judas' question. How will your disciples see you and not the world? Or put it another way, in light of the Jewish messianic hope, if you are the Messiah, why would you let this happen? See, according to the world, the church building here this evening is empty. Our faith has no God. You're alone. You're separated from Him. But do not miss that what Christ is saying here. He's saying the separation isn't real. Even though Jesus goes away in the sense that He departs from our human view, Christians continue to see Him, to know Him, and to share in Him by His Spirit. That's what the Catechism says. He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits. You see, in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and His ascension into heaven, He becomes the first fruits of the new creation. He is the first member, the first person to enter into a new world, a new realm of existence, a spiritual dominion that's higher than us. Higher than evil. Higher than Satan. Higher than the wickedness of this world. Yet in Christ's sending of the Son, God breaks not only into our age, but He breaks into our hearts. 
and unites us with the Son so that we may join Christ. That we may be with Christ in that new creation in heaven. Jesus in sending them, those disciples, and unto us, the Spirit is actually drawing us closer to Him. In verses 18 and 20, Jesus says the Spirit's presence in their lives should be equated to His presence in their lives. Functionally, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the presence of Christ in our lives. What does this mean? It means the Spirit in us is Christ in us, and the Spirit in us is us in Christ. That we are united with Him. He is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. This is the great purpose for which the Spirit has been given to the church. Anthony Hokema, who was my favorite American theologian who just worked at Calvin Seminary many, many years ago, just up the street here, he said this, the chief role of the Holy Spirit in the process of our salvation is to make us one with Christ. The chief role of the Holy Spirit in the process of our salvation is to make us one with Christ. He points us to Christ. He magnifies Christ. And He makes us partakers of Christ. Judas asks, Lord, how are these things to be? And in verses 23 and 24, Jesus gives a perplexing answer to Judas's question. It almost seems like He's avoiding the question in verses 23 and 24, when he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, and whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It's kind of hard to understand how that's applicable. But Jesus is actually making an important distinction here. He's saying, he's making a distinction between the world those who don't love Christ, and the church. Those who do love Christ. The Spirit will come to those who love Christ. And Jesus and the Father will be seen by those who have eyes to see. Jesus responds to Judas. He says, I will be revealed. Many people will know My glory. Many people will know My kingship but not by public manifestation. They will know who I am by the work of My Spirit. Outside appearances to the contrary. Jesus and the Father will come. They will make their home in the disciples who through the Spirit of truth who will be with them forever. Well, brothers and sisters, One commentator put it this way, why we need the Spirit, or sorry, why we need Christ in order to receive the benefits of Christ. He said this by way of illustration, imagine that someone said to his wife, I'm going to leave you, but every month I will send you enough so that you'll have a good life. 
But the wife who loves her husband will say this, I need you. I would rather live in poverty with you than be able to live free of care without you. The Spirit is given not as if Christ has left us. No, the Spirit was given to draw us closer and to give us even more union and fellowship with Him. Let's conclude this evening. When we are given the Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, what He brings unto us is Christ and all of His benefits. Christ is in us. Christ is in this place this evening by the power of His Spirit. This Spirit is our helper, our advocate, and our friend. And if Christ's Spirit or if Christ is in heaven and has given us His Spirit, it is a sure sign and pledge that He will draw us not only spiritually, but one day physically to be with Him for all of eternity. So I want to ask this evening, do you know the presence of the Spirit of Christ? Has He indwelt you? If not, Today is the day of salvation. Receive Christ and you too will know the presence of His Spirit in your life to defeat sin, to defeat death, and to defeat the devil. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks that You have not forgotten us here on earth but that You have sent unto us Your Spirit. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would know more and more the Spirit's power in our life, that we would nurture this relationship with the third member of the Godhead, not always thinking upon the Father and the Son, but also casting our minds unto the Spirit. That we might pray to Him and to ask to put to death our sinful ways that we might pray unto Him and ask Him to help our worship to facilitate in our parenting, in our child-rearing, in our jobs, in our workplaces, whatever the issues may be, let us look unto Him whom You have sent to give us strength and comfort and joy in the Lord. Father, we pray also for any here who, who do not know Christ as Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, that You might draw them unto Yourself by Your Spirit. That they might recognize this first, second, and third member of the Trinity as God and King. And might embrace them with true and living faith. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.